0: And now to introduce today's speaker, I am delighted to welcome Dr. David O'Brien. Dr. O'Brien is a colorectal surgeon. He completed his medical school at Emory University and went on to do internship and residency at the University of Cincinnati Department of Surgery, where he also served as chief resident of the Department of Surgery. Dr. O'Brien then completed a clinical fellowship in colorectal surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. He brings his expertise to all of us and the Oregon Clinic Gastrointestinal and Minimally Invasive Surgery Group as a fellow of the American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons and the American College of Surgeons. Dr. O'Brien is well known for his outstanding clinical care as well as his clarity of teaching. And we are so grateful to have him join us today. Thank you, Dr. Bryan. I will turn it over to you.
1: Okay. Uh, thank you uh, for that kind introduction. Um, I got a request to, uh, to bring this topic uh, to everyone, um, uh, uh, and we're going to talk about benign diseases of the anus. I think at times when I've given this talk or or a similar talk, I I, I might have called it the acute anus, but um, this is uh, this is a topic that I suspect a lot of you all um, uh, encounter in everyday practice, and um, this is, uh, for lack of a better term, this is a sort of a black hole of of information here. Um, uh, this is not a place that that people are very experienced in, um, and so I think it's good to get some background knowledge of this as you see patients that come through your office with these kinds of problems. So I'm going to try to attract some attention here with a, a little story about somebody that may, or may that you all may or may not know. If you do, don't don't spill the beans for everyone, but. Uh, John, John Paul Stapp is, a, is an interesting character. He is, a, um, is an engineer. Um, he also has a, a, a medical degree from the University of Minnesota um, in 1944. He is a, a lifelong um, US Air Force um, officer. And, and, and his story is interesting because he, uh, he studied um, acceleration and deceleration uh, uh, dynamics on humans. And, um, I've got a couple photos here. On the left, he's in this sled that they used to test these effects on people. and And uh, these sleds would go extremely fast. And at one point, um, they clocked him going over six hundred miles an hour in these sleds, and they would slow them down to see what 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 happened uh, to him. And the sled on the left they they used to call the uh, the G whiz So, we' we'll just show a little video here. Uh, So you might ask, um, what does this have to do with uh, the benign anus and nothing but but the story is interesting interesting. So um, so soon after they started doing these experiments, they um, uh, brought in a guy named Edward A. Murphy, and uh, he was a West Point grad and was a pilot during World War Two. And um, he was uh, also an engineer. And, and specifically was in the US Air Force. Uh, Institute of Technology and came became a uh, research. and developer um, officer and. Um, he developed these things called uh, uh, strain. gauges and um, and they put these strain. gauges in the system to help uh, better. measure uh, the amount of strain on people. undergoing this deceleration. And so. Uh, the story goes that that um, that they put these strain gauges in and tried to run the experiment and realized that the strain gauges had been put in uh, backwards. And and apparently he said at that moment, if anything can go wrong, it will. And so after that, in a press conference, um, John Paul staff was referring to this incident incident and and. Uh, coined the phrase Murphy's Law. So I think Mur- Murphy's Law, now you know the uh, background there. And apparently it applies to something that happened at the hospital uh, yesterday that we were discussing before uh, before this meeting started where all the power went out. So with that, I think uh, the rest of the talk is is uh, going to be confined to the anus. So uh, we're going to do a little bit of uh, um, uh, talking about the presentation of the various illnesses, how we evaluate um, Uh, those problems, management, and then we'll look at a few images um, so everyone can be a little bit more familiar with what we're looking at. One of the messages that I want to make sure everybody understands that bleeding is not normal. Um, we, We see a lot of patients who come in who said, you know, I'll ask them, hey, have you been having any bleeding? And they say, oh, just my hemorrhoids for the last five years. Well, Most patients don't know whether or not it's hemorrhoids or something else. So I always try to let everybody know that bleeding is always not normal. It seems obvious, but but not not to everyone. Um, So there are all kinds of different symptoms that people may present with um, that may help uh, lead to a diagnosis. Um, uh, Pain and bleeding with bowel movements is common for an anal fissure. It can also happen with hemorrhoids. Bleeding and prolapse is uh, more common with hemorrhoids and and uh, rectal prolapse swelling pain drainage of pus uh, is more likely to indicate something like an abscess fistula or even proctitis less commonly Um, mucus drainage and incontinence um, that's a a common presentation for rectal prolapse blood mixed with stool could indicate something like a malignancy or colitis and then and then there's this other entity you know pain without any physical findings and, and oftentimes that leads to us that leads to a diagnosis of something called proctalgia fugax or levator spasm which we'll talk a about a little bit later so what are the causes of anal pain well they're 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 not that many actually Um, uh, i usually think of three main things when i think of anal pain i think of anal fissure i think of thrombosed hemorrhoids and anal rectal abscess and there are some other less common things like a low-lying tumor a sexually transmitted disease as i mentioned proctology fugax or elevator spasm and then sometimes impaction will also present that way so uh, this is a pretty busy slide but um but there's lots of different ways to evaluate treats and follow up on on anal pain i won't go through all this but um uh, uh, this sometimes can help us uh, guide us uh, when necessary so how do we examine patients um there's sort of two classic ways to do this in the office. Um, there's the uh, uh, left lateral position on the top here, which you can see. And then the pro jackknife position. Um, uh, I have I have six partners, or well, I have five partners, there's six of us. And I would say half do left lateral and half do pro jackknife. It sort of just depends on how you were trained and uh, which position is better for your back, that kind of thing. Um, uh, the the downside to to prone jackknife position is that you have to have a special table. Um, I find that way a little bit easier for me, but one of my partners will say left lateral works better for them. I would say overall patients probably would prefer left lateral position, um, but I think you got to do whatever whatever works best for you in this case. So when we do an examination, I first uh, you know I always let the patients know exactly what we're going to do, but but. First start with a visual inspection and things that I'm looking for at that point are are like an external thrombosis that might lead to a thrombosed hemorrhoid, prolapse, and that can be from a hemorrhoid or for rectal prolapse, Um, swelling, erythema, drainage, a sentinel tag, which is just like a little firm tag sticking out of the anus that can indicate something called an anal fissure, Uh, looking for warts, cancers, anything like that. Then I always do a, a, a pretty thoughtful a digital exam, uh, and it always helps to have done many and know what you're looking for. But always again, warn the patient, use lots of lubrication. Um, at one point in time, we were we were always using a, a tetracaine um, uh, mixture in our lubrication, which I thought helped. We, we aren't allowed to do that uh, anymore. There's been some issues with that, but that's unfortunate. But Always uh, well lubricated, um, but I'm looking for any masses or lesions. I'm looking to see what kind of tone or squeeze the patients have. How good is their sphincter muscle and then seeing if there's any tenderness. Um, the scopes that 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 we use, you, you all may have heard of anoscopes and proctoscopes. What's the difference? Well, an anus scope mainly is just just for the anus or distal rectal canal. Um, these can be lighted. Um, uh, I I I prefer the lighted scopes. They can be helpful. Um, and then the proctoscopes are, are longer scopes to look in uh, the rectum. And and you know, on, on occasion you can get uh, proctoscopes up pretty approximately to 20 and sometimes even 25 centimeters. Uh, the advantage of the proctoscope is that um, they are they have a insufflation bulb on it, so. You can uh, insufflate the rectum and see and see really well. It's a little bit of a skill to do that, but but um, I think in 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 experienced hands, it's about as good as as like a uh, flexible sigmoidoscope or colonoscope. So why don't we talk about some hemorrhoids? That's what everybody thinks they have when they go see the doctor, um, uh, and 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 many of them are right. About uh, ten million individuals uh, yearly. Um, have hemorrhoid related problems Uh, the peak incidence is anywhere from 45 to 65 but we see patients uh, of all ages and uh, but it is unusual to have uh, teenagers have this issue and then men tend to have more severe disease i think it probably has to do with some of their activities but um, uh, but i've I've got plenty of women with bad hemorrhoids so now how do we classify these these are um, the easiest way to do this is is internal external uh, and then uh, mixed or or both. The internal hemorrhoids uh, tend to occur with the mucosal lining of the distal rectum and anus. Externals are, are below the dentate or or covered in uh, squamous uh, tissue. So as a reminder, things that hemorrhoids do: they can bleed, they can protrude, they can be uncomfortable, um, they can drain, and the drainage is usually coming from when the from the mucosa. When it's sort of hanging out of the anus the patients will will give you sort of this story of seepage or mucus drainage on the underwear something like that all right so let's talk about treatment um so when i think about treating hemorrhoids i think there are a couple of things that are important to remember um you know no two hemorrhoids are, are alike and so we we grade the hemorrhoids and which is uh, one of the most important things in determining um, the severity, but some hemorrhoids are just large, and and they're going to be more resistant um, uh, uh, to treatment, and and may require something uh, more aggressive. And so we'll talk about some of these things here in a second. So how about an acutely thrombosed extra hemorrhoid? I'm sure this is uh, something that that many of you all see. Um, so you, you'll you'll get a. Uh, Message us over over and over again about how we handle anal problems. They, these are very consistent across many of the many of the uh, diagnoses. So and that includes includes hydration. You usually put people on a high fiber diet. You know, and people ask, well, what is that? I would say at least you know twenty five sort of grams a day. Thirty grams is is uh, what I tell the patients a lofty goal. I tend to give them a handout with the uh, food types, the amounts of foods, and the corresponding grams of fiber. I think they find that pretty helpful. Um, I usually put folks on a Fiber supplementation. There's all different types. I don't think they're all the same. Um, I I like a product called Citracil. I don't have any stock in our company or anything, but they're very. It's very easy on the stomach. It seems to help patients with both constipation and some diarrhea. Um, laxatives as needed. You know, some patients are worried about taking laxatives for too long. I try to put them on something that's 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 easy to tolerate and won't cause any uh, problems in the long run. And then for people who are uncomfortable having pain. Um, uh, they can do warm baths or some form of analgesia. I, I try not to give narcotics or anything like this. Um, that's just going to exacerbate some of the issues. And then a lot of times we'll do an excision, and that's something that we can generally do in the office—not always, but usually. And we'll we'll look at this. So here here are a couple of slides of uh, of a couple of patients with um, uh, with thrombosed hemorrhoids. So they 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 generally have the patients come in. They'll say they, they have a painful lump. And maybe they lifted something, maybe had an episode of constipation or diarrhea, something that that uh, triggered this episode. Um, but in each of these cases, um, just uh, for fun here, I, I included some photos of where the thrombosis has eroded uh, through the skin. And um, uh, And that becomes a little more difficult for patients and it takes a little bit longer time to heal. We don't always excise these, but when it gets to this point, I usually, Need to do something to get rid of this. Otherwise, it can just take a long time for it to resolve on its own. So, here's a couple of photos of what we do in the office. Here's uh, on the far left is a thrombosed hemorrhoid. Um, we've anesthetized the area and then I uh, sharply excised that here. Um, you know, I always dictate that I took care to not injure the underlying sphincter muscle. That'd be pretty unusual to, to injure the sphincter with just doing an excision of an external hemorrhoid. And then I usually close it up with some stitches, but not always, just sort of depends on the case. So how about internal hemorrhoids? So first degree internal hemorrhoids, and and when we talk about these degrees, we're referring to internal hemorrhoids specifically, not external hemorrhoids. So first degree hemorrhoids bleed, Um, second degree hemorrhoids, they they prolapse and then they reduce uh, spontaneously. Third degree prolapse and they require a manual reduction. So patients will say, "Yeah, oh, I've been pushing it back in because it won't go in on its own." And then fourth degree is uh, irreducible prolapse where they just kind of hang out all the time. And fourth degree hemorrhoids are, are not really, or not always, a, a, an indication for um, uh, for an emergent procedure. Some of them are 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 um, are. They're stuck out. They are They are sort of strangulated or from and that's a more urgent situation, but many of them just hang out and they just can't get them to go back in and they just stay how they stay. And and that's that's not an emergency. So again, uh, same kind of thing I was talking about before, medical management, hydration, fiber, fiber supplementations, laxatives, and um, occasionally I'll give a topical agent uh, um, if necessary. So um, um knowing what to do with internal hemorrhoids um there's a lot there's lots of different options uh when it comes to procedures um i guess what i would say is when i'm seeing somebody with with internal hemorrhoids if they're if they're prolapsing or protruding that's sort of the trigger to me that they're going to need something done that fiber and fiber supplements and all that they may think make things better but it's just not reversible at that point so uh, we'll go through each of these, but but uh, the common office based procedures that that many of us have heard about are IRC or what's called infrared coagulation sclerotherapy, and then banding and then there are a number of different operations and 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 frankly they're coming up with new ones all the time um, the, the ones that seem to have uh, uh, persisted the longest are staple hemorrhoid apexi, and then there's a, something called ultrasound-guided dearterialization. I don't do th- do that, but but that exists. And then and then hemorrhoidectomy. Hemorrhoidectomy it was a good operation years ago. It's still a good operation, um, uh, and, and we do a lot of them. So infrared coagulation, uh, you know, m- most of these procedures are done through an anoscope. But infrared coagulation is basically heat, and, um, and this is good for some small hemorrhoids that are just causing a little bit of bleeding. Um, and I basically take the this uh, infrared coagulator. It has this um a tip on the end where it heats up the hemorrhoid, causes a little bit of a scar, and the hemorrhoid shrivels up. And um, I think that's a good option for a younger patient with uh, with uh, a pretty um, pretty early disease. So, our group does a lot of sclerotherapy, and this is this is uh, an example of that. So we're talking a little bit bigger hemorrhoids, maybe prolapsing at this point. Um, and we inject something called the uh, 5% phenol. There's some other solutions that people use. It's a similar kind of uh, situation to varicose veins where you might uh, uh, inject a sclerosant, And it basically causes a, a scar and causes the hemorrhoid to shrivel up. And we inject a few CCs into the pedicle of each of the, uh, the hemorrhoids that are problematic. Um, and it, it only takes about five minutes to do, so which is kind of nice. Banding uh, is a pretty common procedure as well. Um, And so we've got a little special device that you can see on the left here to get these little these little rubber bands. They're extremely small and tight I I liken them to like a little rubber band that you have on your braces uh, when you're a kid. But you you normally put a little cone on the top of this device and you and you have to roll these uh, uh, bands across the cone to spread it out to get it on the tip of this. We usually use two and then we grab the hemorrhoid and then slide this um, over and then fire the fire the device, which throws the hemorrhoids onto the, the base here you can see on the right. I usually inject a little bit of local medication into the, the, the tip of the hemorrhoid after the bands have gone on just so the bands don't fall off and it gives a little bit of analgesia. And then sometimes I'll even inject a little sclerosin at the base so that when this all falls off, um, uh you don't have uh, too much bleeding that's one of the biggest uh, problems with banding is the bleeding um you all may have heard about some infections uh, related to bands that i think that that can occur it's pretty uncommon I, i would say our group probably sees maybe one significant infection after a banding maybe every couple of years so it's pretty uncommon um i think it uh, gained notoriety because of a few few uh, memorable cases uh, back in the 80s and cases where uh patients with aids were were banded and they got uh, significant infections it's not very common but part part of the consent process nevertheless so this uh, this uh, very large device is a um uh, is the uh, stapler for a, a staple hemorrhoidopexy and uh, you just have to follow me here but um so this isn't really a resection, although you do resect some tissue. But what you're doing is you're pexing the uh, the hemorrhoids uh, back up inside. It's a good option for isolated internal hemorrhoidal disease, and uh, where it's not where it's um, uh, where there's not a lot of external disease. So it doesn't really address that. So we we put this uh, special uh, uh, dilator in, and then we um, and we uh, have a little um, a little eyelet device which circles around with us as we're putting this suture in this. This little purse string suture goes through the submucosa circumferentially. And then we slide the anvil through here. We tie this down and we fire the stapler. And it creates this circumferential staple line across. the distal rectum. And it's it's very effective. Um, I think it's one of these devices that you really need to know what you're doing when you when you use this. And um, I've done a lot of these, but it's I've really. I've kind of moved away from it. I. I think in general it's a safe procedure if, if you're experienced, but I, I do think there is the patient out there that you could really hurt if you weren't careful. Um, so uh, so I, I guess if anybody's out there and they see somebody and someone recommends this operation, I would just make sure that they know what what they're doing. Here is a, a classic uh, example of um, of a hemorrhoidectomy. Um The most common hemorrhidectomy we do these days is something called a Ferguson or a closed hemorrhidectomy and basically where when you think about hemorrhoids what are hemorrhoids they are they are um it's excessive or redundant tissue that sort of lost its connection to the underlying uh, rectum and anal wall and so and so what we're doing with the hemorrhoidectomy is we're excising that redundant tissue and then we're suturing the tissue back down to the underlying wall and so in this case we've 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 graphed the hemorrhoidal tissue we're excising it and then and then we're suturing it closed. And, th- and this is uh, this is sort of an example here of what, what will be called a three column hemorrhoidectomy. So there's there's uh, three incisions so. Um, uh, and this is uh, this is a really good operation for someone who has uh, both internal and external hemorrhoidal disease. Um, you, you may see a lot of studies comparing various uh, procedures um, and, and you got to remember what you got to remember and ask yourself which which disease are we talking about so sometimes there's just not a good comparison between two different procedures so there's not really a great comparison for something like a hemorrhoidectomy it is a one stop shopping kind of thing for both internal and external disease so it's hard to compare that let's say to a hemorrhoidopexy because that only addresses internal hemorrhoidal disease so here's a picture of sort of a classic example who's got a patient who's got um, prolapsing internal hemorrhoids as well as uh, external hemorrhoids, um, and so we took this uh, this gentleman to the operating room and did a, uh, uh, a hemorrhoidectomy. And um, so uh, you can sort of see here. This is sort of the after effects here. There's sort of three suture lines, and he went on to have a good result. Here is a here is an, uh a very interesting case I had. This gentleman showed up in the emergency room. This is this is pretty uncommon. Um, but had this st- sticking out, and uh, this is this is impressive. When I first saw this, I didn't know if this was dead, if this was ecumotic, um, if it was infected. This was essentially this is the internal portion of the disease. This is the external portion of the disease. Um, and uh, hopefully, you all are seeing my pointer. But this, but the central portion, this red portion, is the internal prolapsing thrombosed hemorrhoid and uh so i took him to the operating room emergently this is one of the one of the times when emergency is necessary And did a hemorrhoidectomy um and so i i had to i had to put him under complete general anesthesia with uh with paralysis to make sure i had uh, plenty of visualization to do what i needed to do but so this this is his uh um uh right afterwards which is pretty pretty impressive Uh, so I actually only took off one hemorrhoid. It was just that whole thing was one hemorrhoid and and there's a suture line right here on the left side. So he had he had a a good result as well. So we'll move on from hemorrhoids. Let's talk about anal fissure. This is this is uh, probably the most common problem I see when patients show up to the office and say, Doc, I've got pain and bleeding with bowel movements. Um, And so this is this is the first thing I think of. Um, So. Uh, this is this is uh, this is a exam in the operating room, so. Here's what we're looking at. This is the, the, the edge of the fissure here. This is the, what we would call a sentinel tag, and there's a little split here. I, I don't think this comes through very. This is a, this is a hard thing to take a, a photo of. But essentially a, a, a fissure is is a split in the skin of the anus. And although most people would say, well, we don't really know what causes this. Most people think that it's probably from some amount of. of a a tight internal sphincter muscle. So if you want to follow me here. So the theory is that tightness decreases the blood supply to both the posterior and anterior aspects of the anal canal. And so you get an injury, whether it be a hard bowel movement from constipation or diarrhea even, or a procedure like a hemorrhoidectomy or something else. and, And you get this tear and it just doesn't heal very well. So this, this is sort of a classic picture of, the, um, uh, of uh, something you would find in a colorectal surgery textbook looking at uh, typical and atypical uh, fissures. And so again, here's the, the posterior midline fissure is about 90% of cases, anterior midline is about uh, 10% or so, and then there's a smattering of very uncommon um, other problems that can cause fissures that you might see laterally. So whenever I see those, my, my uh, attention gets raised. You got to think about other diagnoses. Um, things that I see a lot would be something like Crohn's and probably HIV. Um, uh, tuberculosis, uh, fissures can occur, but I, I, I'm not sure I've ever seen one. Um, obviously, a, a, a cancer, a small early cancer, can look like a fissure, and so you always got to make sure that that's not, that's not what's going on. So again, treatment of, treatment of an anal fissure is sort of Similar uh, again, medically speaking to some of the other um, um, entities. And again, when I'm seeing these patients and I'm giving these things, I'm telling them, look, your goal is to have a soft formed bowel movement. If you need to take two scoops of your fiber a day or you need to cut back on your fiber even or something like that, that's that's sort of the goal. So soft formed bowel movement, no straining. Loose stool is bad. Hard stool is bad. Soft serve ice cream stool. That's that's bad, too. That's just a little too soft. And I will use some some topical agents for fissures and and if you'll remember us talking about the theory that the. That the. Um, that the fissure is from tightness. we'll we'll do things that to to reverse that so topical agents um, Botox and even operations and so. These topical agents a little hard to get at times, but once you know where to get them and how to get them, it, it, it's uh, it, it gets a little easier. We give. Our patient still ties them 2% they they get it at a compounding. pharmacy and I tell them to put it on either 2 or 3 times a day. I'd say half my partners do it twice, half do it 3 times. And, um, and it's just a little spot right on the anus. Uh, there's some controversy about whether or not you have to put it in the anus, but I think right on it is probably. fine. And that will cause a little bit of relaxation. Botox or botulinum toxin. Um, is something uh, people know about from from getting rid of wrinkles in the face and that kind of thing. Um, It's uh, it's a uh, muscle paralytic. So also causing relaxation of the sphincter muscle. We inject that both in the office and sometimes in the operating room. Um, I usually use about 100 units, but some studies looked at 50 units, but the bottles are 100 units and we hardly ever have uh, leftover long enough to do it again. So I usually just give 100 units. And I do it right around the fissure into the internal sphincter muscle. And and if you do it carefully, I put it in a TV syringe. I can usually do it literally as as you count one, two, three, almost that quickly. It's probably though not a lot more effective than topical agents in medic and medical therapy. But I think in some cases it's still warranted because um, uh, we tr- try to avoid operating um, for anal fissures. And and here's why. So the operation um, of choice for someone who has a, um, a fissure that is a refractory to medicine is something called a lateral internal sphincterotomy and so what we're essentially doing here is is cutting um, uh, the internal sphincter muscle so topicals relax the internal sphincter muscle botox paralyzes the internal sphincter muscle those are both reversible and internal sphincterotomy is permanent and the complication rates of this are not insignificant. And the one thing that that, occur, that can occur in cases like this is something called incontinence, uh, where, where patients can't control their gas or stool net anymore. Now, having said that, you know, I usually tell patients that the risk of that's about anywhere from 5 to 15 percent, depending on what your study you're looking at. But I, I wouldn't do this in someone who whose continence is, is a problem. And, and fortunately, you know, if the theory that hypertonic sphincters is the problem. Usually those patients are not, not having continence issues. So, um, but again, I always choose wisely. I, I'll go as long as I can go with medical therapy, as long as the patients are continuing to improve. At some point, they just kind of grab you by the tie and say, man, you've got to help me with this problem. I can't function and whatnot. And then that's when we do this. Um, there are a couple different ways uh, that you can do it. The, the, the last slide looked at an open approach. This is a, uh, a closed approach here, and it's where you make just a little incision uh, right along the in, uh, inner sphincteric groove, meaning between the internal and external sphincter muscle, and then you turn the the knife uh, towards the anus and then you cut the muscle. You're not cutting it all the way through the mucosa, just just the tight band muscle. All right. So, how about anal rectal abscesses? This, this is a uh, this is a pretty pretty common problem. We see we see a lot of this. And abscesses are classified essentially by where they where they occur. So there, these lateral ones are generally ischioanal or ischiorectal abscesses. They're very common. Perianal or superficial, Inter-sphincteric, very common as well. And these are between the sphincter muscle and less common or something a little more proximal or something we call superlevator. These are the levator muscles here, and so something above that. That 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 usually occurs almost uh, solely in patients with Crohn's disease. Um, and here are some some other examples of where they can occur as well. Uh, these superlevator or retrorectal, again, very uncommon. What, what's the etiology of an abscess? Uh, this is a famous uh, photo uh, of of a crypt at, at what's called the dentate line or pectinate line in the anus. So there's there's usually like eight, twelve, maybe fifteen crypts about the anus, and they get they get plugged somehow, and this in, infection extends out. And this one's sort of in the inner groove here. This is sort of evidence that this is the way, way these abscesses happen. So they happen from the inside out. So patients uh, present, as we talked about a little bit before, pain and swelling. Um, sometimes they're febrile, they can't sit down, um, they tend to be difficult to examine. Sometimes these patients have trouble urinating too. That That's a sign that things need to be taken care of uh, pretty quickly. I would say. 95 plus percent of patients that have this problem. Uh, diagnosis is made sort of at the time of physical exam. Imaging is really not necessary. I, I will say I occasionally get it if I'm having trouble finding something. But that's pretty rare. So most commonly we would get a CT very rarely. an MRI and almost never an ultrasound. I, I can't remember the last time I, I got an ultrasound for, uh, for this problem. So here's a typical patient who's got some. Um, uh, uh erythema and swelling on the on the left side here and you'll notice this pus is coming out of the anus and so this this is draining sort of back through the the internal opening where the infection occurred and this is this is actually pretty common. So uh, medical therapy is not going to do it for this so. Um, uh, so we we uh, do an urgent incision and drainage procedure on these patients. Most of the time we can do this in the office uh, too. Every once in a while somebody's got something deep or doesn't tolerate much in the office and then we take them to the operating room under general anesthesia. Um, and and there's always a question about treating with with abscesses. I, I think sometimes when patients are seen somewhere where they, they can't get uh, can't get in a drainage procedure, I think temporizing with some antibiotics is, is not unreasonable afterwards is sort of a bigger question so who, who do we give antibiotics to after we've we've drained an abscess we usually don't um but i would definitely consider somebody who is on the immunosuppressed side so an obese patient somebody's diabetic or somebody's got a really bad infection with a lot of a lot of erythema and induration um and, and they just need a little bit of extra help there's been some data recently it's not very good about um about the prevention of anal fistula, which we'll talk about in a second. So some people do think that giving um, antibiotics will reduce the incidence of that uh, developing. So anal fistula comes from, from, from an abscess. And so what happens is, is the if you remember, the abscess starts on the inside, it extends externally, and then you drain it externally. And that site where you drain it or it drains spontaneously um, can, that track between the inside and the outside persists and that that becomes this anal fistula. And it's basically where two things are connected that shouldn't be and in this case, the inside anus and the outside world. And so most of these patients have had an abscess in the past. Sometimes patients don't remember having an abscess and, and they just went from basically nothing to to fistula. That does happen sometimes. Uh, they will complain of uh, pus drainage, sometimes bloody drainage, sometimes bloody purulent drainage, something like that. They may have a little bit of pain and swelling but that's not that's not super common some patients that will go back and forth between abscess the fistula they'll get this abscess and then it'll drain like an abscess it'll drain and and just cycle through like that that's pretty common as well so as i mentioned before uh the cryptoglandular is sort of the uh the majority of patients that that present with this kind of problem um crohn's disease is another uh common uh, scenario for, for seeing this, we obviously have a lot of patients with. Crohn's and 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 they have lots of fistulas. I would say about 7 to 10% of patients who have. Crohn's actually initially present with a fistula so. And somebody that comes to me with a fistula, I'll think about whether. or not they need a more in-depth evaluation because I have concerns. about Crohn's and, and sometimes that's just there's a part to that more than. more than a, a recipe per se. Um, cancers can present with fistulas trauma. Um. Um, and, and the situation where, where trauma can cause this would be something like childbirth, that they have got a tear and then they heal and they get a persistent track. Hydradenitis suppurativa is another uh, problem that we occasionally see uh, the, that can cause fistula. Now the difference between hydrodinitis and anal, that suppurativa fistula and anal fistula, like a cryptoglandular fistula, is that hydrodinitis co- causes these superficial subcutaneous uh fistula that don't actually go to the anus. So whenever I see that kind of problem, I, I'm thinking hydratinized. And HIV occasionally uh causes a problem like this. Not very commonly, but occasionally. So here are the different types and of of uh fistula and just like um anal anal rectal abscesses they're sort of categorized by their relationship to the sphincter muscle. So most books will tell you that the intersphincteric uh fistula is the most common and that, that means it goes through the internal uh, muscle and then. out to the skin. And then transphincteric is probably. almost as common and it goes through both the internal and external sphincter muscle. externally. And then suprasphincteric and. extra sphincteric are, are very uncommon. And again, those, those are more likely to be in, uh, seen in someone. who has uh, Crohn's disease. So good rule is a rule we love to quiz. the residents and medical students on and and. And what is goodsall's rule? So goodsall's rule: if you draw, draw a transverse line across the anus, and and look at the external opening, it helps you predict where the internal opening is. Because sometimes you go to the operating room looking for the tract that fissure; it's hard to find. So it helps you it helps guide you. So if it's if the external opening is posterior to this transverse line, it almost always starts in the posterior midline of the anal canal. If it's anterior uh to this transverse line then it either will drain in a radial fashion inward uh, to the anus or may do a horseshoe number to the posterior that's sort of the exception uh, but but we see a lot of exceptions so so again diagnosing an official physical, physical exam is the most common um, uh, there are some other options if you think someone's got a fistula but you can't find it on exam, I think MRI is probably the next best choice. Um, I, I can't remember the last time I ordered an ultrasound or even a fistulography, um, but those are those are options. Usually, we do sort of a poor man's fistulography in the operating room. We'll get there in just a second, and I'll show you some photos of that. So, um, here's a otherwise normal anus with this opening here, and so this this is this is a classic. Looking uh, anal fistula external opening right here. So we can find the path in the operating room under anesthesia by probing. We've got various types of probes that have all different types of curvature to help uh, help us uh, find the internal opening. Sometimes you can look on the inside and see the opening. Sometimes you just can't. You got to you've got to do the probe thing. Um, other things that I like to do is uh, if if I put like a cc or two of hydrogen peroxide and fill the rest. Of a syringe up with saline I'll put an angiocath on the end and I'll squirt it through here holding a little bit of pressure and it will find the internal opening frequently and then this is a another option which is a methylene blow so you can see we're here and it looks like it's coming out somewhere up in the anterior midline here's a example of someone doing a fistulography um, again uh, this is a sort of a historical photo we just, just don't do this anymore so what what are what are, uh, what are our treatment options? So the best thing to do with an anal fistula, and one thing to remember about an anal fistula, and I tell patients this, it's not going to go away without without us exerting a force on it, and meaning operating. Antibiotics, topical agents, uh, all kinds of other things are just not going to work with, without without uh, without an operation. So the thing we like to do most is something called a fistulotomy, which is sort of where we lay open the tract. And I'll show you a picture in just a minute. But it's basically where we take the probe through the external to the internal opening and cut everything external to that. And um, and then I usually suture the edges down. And again, I'll show you a picture. And that that works to cure a fistula like 98% of the time. That's that's sort of the goal. But sometimes the path of those muscles, as we looked before, or the path of the fistula tracts incorporates too much muscle. And if you cut too much, then you're gonna have incontinence. So we can't do that. Sometimes we'll put what's called a draining time, which is basically uh, just a drain. It looks like a rubber band It's silastic. Uh, we we uh, steal uh, vest- uh, what we call vessel loops from the uh, from the vascular surgeons and we pass it through the tract and tie it to itself. That can be temporary or permanent. Most of the time when I put that in, I, I'm, I'm doing it in a temporary manner to get to some other procedure. To, and what I'll use that for is to let the inflammation go down, let the tract form a little bit better. And then we come back and do some of these other procedures, a sliding mucosal advancement flap and a lift procedure or a ligation of intersphincteric fistula tract. These are some other options. Now, I hear a lot of people talk about what plugs and glues and other things, and those just do not work. Uh, the original studies on the plug was great by the person who developed it, but nobody could repeat the word. So I don't, I don't even bother with those anymore. So here's a photo of somebody who's had a a, a fistulotomy. So we put the probe in, we cut the tissue, and now someone sutured the edges down or what we call marsupialized it to keep the wound open so it can drain from the inside out. So I think with, uh, with the remaining time here, we'll we'll uh, look through some uh, some uh, uh, pictures and, and look and see and and question what's the diagnosis here and I'll, I'll help everyone out. But um, these are just things that I commonly and sometimes uncommonly see that that are important to to be able to diagnose. So. Here's a more classic picture of somebody who's got the prolapsing internal as well as external hemorrhoids and and um, and that patient's getting an operation uh, once they're sort of great for prolapsing you, you really got to do a hemorrhoidectomy here's a, a more impressive example for this so looks like there's some thrombosis in these and these hemorrhoids here they're a little more firm and and uh, that is an unhappy situation this was a really strange case that presented to me a few years ago where somebody had um I, and I told this patient I said, I think this is hemorrhoids for lack of a better term to to name this, but she presented with this sort of fibrotic tissue all the way around her anus. Fortunately, she wasn't very symptomatic, and there's not there wasn't really a good fix for this. And so I recommended we we just treat this patient with just some medical therapy and try to optimize bowel habits and that kind of thing. Here's a patient who's uh, I don't know if you can see this, but she's straining on the toilet. And a lot of times this is what you've got to do to find this diagnosis. This is rectal prolapse. And so what's important to remember here, what's you know, a lot of times people will have trouble diagnosing prolapsing hemorrhoids versus versus uh, prolapse. And this is, I'd say this is early prolapse. And but you can tell because the lines in the in the prolapse are circular. Um, when it when it, they tend to be radial for hemorrhoids. So this is this is a circular pattern. This is so early rectal prolapse. Here is uh, I would describe this as later rectal prolapse. This is this is probably the most impressive prolapse that I've taken care of. Um, and, and this is uh, this is the size of a, a child's head. I mean, this was just a huge prolapse. It was very challenging to fix, but fortunately we did. Uh, this was a patient. I think this was a transplant patient that I saw who basically had, it was just condyloma, um, you know, this looks like classic condyloma. Kind of this looks a little like something else, and and so we did lots of biopsies in this. Unfortunately, this was just benign, and um, took a long time to get rid of this. But um, but that that's a mess. This is a more subtle case. This was a also a transplant patient um, who who had had some cervical dysplasia, vaginal lesions as well, but who presented to me with this. These hyperpigmented areas, they they're very subtle. And although you can't see this, they were slightly raised and, and that that it ended up being sort of a precancerous a squamous precancerous lesion or what we call high grade squamous uh, intraepithelial lesions. And so she's on a regimen where we look every uh, every few months and we we burn or biopsy or destroy uh, uh, those as often as necessary. So this could be. This one could be mistaken for a wart, um, but this is a cancer. And uh, when you when you see it and feel it, it just you just know. It's firm. It's it's sort of fungating, and this is an anal cancer. So you can do a biopsy of this in the office and get the diagnosis pretty easily. This is like the worst one of the worst cases of anal cancer I've ever seen, and, and this patient got sent to me with reported uh, uh, condyloma or warts and did a biopsy and this this is a patient who had who had aids and a very low cd4 count and and this was all anal cancer just terrible um this is a this was an interesting case one time i saw a patient who came with this and uh, what this ended up being was a uh, was a, a basal cell carcinoma and um and, and he had gotten radiation and um and it, w- it had persisted and so I, I was the unfortunate surgeon that had to excise this in a situation of radiation, which never, never goes well. And, and that, that was a tough go for him, but um, we were able to. All right, here, here's a here's a woman who's got this uh, dark, pigmented lesion that uh, maybe someone might say this is a thrombosed hemorrhoid. But this is uh, this is pretty ugly. This just isn't right. So uh, we did a biopsy on this and this was a melanoma and anal melanoma is a uh, in my in my uh, area, frequently discussed, rarely seen phenomena. But it's a really it's got a dismal prognosis. This is the same ki- the same kind of thing. This is another anal melanoma. You can see here, sort of right posterior uh, quadrant of the anoderm there. So this was a this was a case of a, a woman who who presented to me. I, I knew her before. She had had a rectal cancer and had, I uh, can't remember all the details, but some form of a myelodysplastic syndrome and was immunosuppressed and came came with this. And and this was, uh, we were in the operating room at this point, but she had had a CT scan. And this is, this is a terrible infection, actually. This is a necrotic spot. She had a necrotizing a soft tissue infection. So, and uh, uh, that was the tip of the iceberg. So once once we excised that area, we got in this huge area of dead tissue and that we had to debride back. and. Um, Uh, Fortunately, in her case, she was already diverted. Uh, She had a colostomy from her from a prior uh, uh, low rectal cancer. And, uh, you know, this did heal eventually, but but it was a long go. So um, just finishing up here. So in summary, you know, bleeding is never normal. You know, everybody always asks, well, when do you get that colonoscopy? You know, I think I think anytime you're concerned that the patient is the appropriate age, but you know, we've got patients who come in to see us in the 30s and they've got they've got cancer. So I, it never hurts to get a colonoscopy when you have any concern at all. For these kinds of diagnosis, history and physical exam are still best way to make to make the diagnosis. And un, unfortunately, you know, this area's experience is key to diagnosing disease. The more pictures you look at, the more patients you see. You know, even the GI guys really struggle with some of these diagnoses. So they they rely on on someone like me and colorectal surgeons. Um, to, to to figure out what's going on and sometimes it's the tools and the experience and that helps but um, I know we all see a lot of these patients and so um, um, you know anything we can do to help uh, uh, is uh, would be our pleasure to see any of these folks just a quick plug for my group here there's six of us now um, and we see patients both on the uh, 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 east and uh, west side of town we've got a prop Portland and a St Vincent office we're actually part of a bigger group of, of many surgeons forga, hepatobiliary, and um, and general surgeons. So I'll finish up there. I hope I didn't go uh, too far uh, over, uh, but thank you. And I'm happy to take any questions you all have at this point.
0: Great, thank you so much, Dr. Brian, I think you're you're absolutely right um, that we don't always get a lot of exposure to seeing and understanding these common conditions. So thank you so much for the The information um, and the visuals really help. Uh, I'll give a chance for people to post other comments and questions, but we have a couple here that we can get started with. Um, First off, um, this question was posted at the time of the discussion of hemorrhoids asking, um, for treatment with topical agents, what are your favorites and are they prescription versus over-the-counter? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we can all admit that when you go
1: to uh, uh, the pharmacy, there is no shortage of um, topical agents to choose from. Um, I, I'm not against topical agents. Now so I think in some cases, um, it can be helpful. Um, a little steroid for a very short period. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, Preparation H, you know, has got most of the uh, of the main formulations that has something called witch hazel in it. I think for short run, that's OK. Um, when I instruct patients on just general good hygiene, though, I tell them I would don't put soap on your anus. Don't put steroid creams on your anus. Um, and. Um, and I have something in the office that I give patients called Calmoceptine. It is a zinc based ointment. I think it's probably the safest thing to give a patient that just causes it's just a barrier cream so it it prevents some irritation you can use it as much or as little as you need um, and it just it doesn't do any harm so you know a lot of a lot of patients come in having tried a bunch of stuff for their quote-unquote hemorrhoids they never really had hemorrhoids and now they've got itching and irritation and I'm and I have to wind the wheel back a little bit get them off the steroids get them off the wet wipes uh, get them off the soap because a lot of patients think it's a cleanliness thing, and actually, usually, overcleaning tends to be the issue. So, um, so I would say a, a zinc-based ointment is is a good is a good um, uh, is a good option. You know, anything is okay in the short run. I just wouldn't do steroids for very long.
0: Thanks. That's extremely helpful. And I have seen and suspect that patients are often trying things for quite some time um, before seeing us for these problems. Um, a couple of really brief and specific questions. Uh, what compounding pharmacy do you use for the diltiazem cream?
1: That is a, that's a really good question. Um, we have a, a relationship with a pharmacy um, on the east side called Gateway Medical Pharmacy. It's at the Gateway Medical Building um, and they've been they've been doing diltiazem for us for uh, as long as I've been here and they do a great job. Um, lloyd center pharmacy is another compounding one um, there the beaverton pharmacy um will will do it as well um it's a funny that you mentioned that because whenever i've got someone with a fissure and i give them diltizum i actually have a printout of like my favorite 15 in the city I, I don't remember all of them but those are three that we use a fair bit and then sometimes when patients are really struggling i say hey listen drive a little bit extra and go to these." go to the gateway pharmacy because they do it for so much. I, I think they've got it down to a science, so to speak, you know. Um, so I do think who formulates can't can't impact uh, you know, the, the, the medication and, and maybe your response. So I, I never rule out that someone got a bad sample of something if I don't feel like I'm getting uh, what I want from it.
0: Great, thanks so much. Um, this may have been alluded to a bit in the talk, but just to reemphasize or add points, what um, what are anal problems from chronic constipation, and what's the best prevention?
1: I would say the things that we see most are are hemorrhoids and fissures. Um, you know, hemorrhoids are sort of the chronic result of, of constipation, and and fissures tend to be sort of an acute. uh uh, problem um and and I think some of the things that I mentioned earlier just lots of fiber in their diet a fiber supplement and then a laxative obviously you know everybody knows Miralax it's pretty effective and that will help most patients um I think if it gets more complicated than that or the patient hasn't had a colonoscopy recently or there's been a change then I would have them CGI you know they have they have some more recommendations for that kind of thing but Again, you know, I, I tell them, you know, the goal, what's the goal here? And I would say you don't have to have like one or two or three bowel movements per day. That's not really the goal. The goal is to have soft but form bowel movements when you're not, so not, not straining. So, if it, However we get to that, I think I'm okay with, uh, but, but that's my usual recipe.
0: Great, thanks so much. Um, what symptoms did the patient with anal melanoma have that brought them to you?
1: Yeah, I, uh, usually it's bleeding um it it ends up being sort of a chronic wound um the the one of uh, the i did show two you know one one had more of a mass and the other had had less less of a mass so um you know ble- bleeding and a mass is sort of the two things that you're going to see most commonly and and they may have some discomfort from it just depending but not everybody does they, they don't you know even though a patients got an anal cancer they don't always they don't always have pain and you'll you know this because some of these patients who have anal cancer, they've had hemorrhoids for years and they finally show up and just say it's just not going away. It's a little more bothersome now. Well, they've had this cancer usually for a few years and and so they tolerate it because it didn't didn't hurt that much. The pain is what will we'll kind of tip patients over to get them in the office more quickly. They set, tend to tolerate a lot of the other stuff uh, pretty well.
0: Great, thank you, that's very helpful. Um, We do have a mixed audience here, but um, uh, a lot of primary care and so often making decisions about what to treat and what to refer and and how to manage. Um, Any any thoughts on common scenarios or situations um, where you see as a specialist that you wish perhaps things had been handled differently prior to the referral sort of? common pearls or while well, you've got our attention, anything um, that you're seeing that we could do differently?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I, I think, you um, know, like everyone, I, I probably see a lot of patients who the patient tells me something that's been going on or the doctor told them. And they're so crazy, I can't fathom that they would be true. And, uh, you know, things like, oh, the doctor said it was just my hemorrhoids. I've been bleeding for five years and we never did anything about it. I think anytime, I, as I mentioned, bleeding, bleeding is not right. So I mean, I think if you're if you're if you're having bleeding, uh, you know, it's if someone's had a colonoscopy within the last two years and they're bleeding, I think, and they don't really have sort of prolapse or something else, I think it's reasonable to put them on a medical regimen and see what happens. Um, because you know, two, you know, colonoscopy in the last two years, assuming they did a good job, pr- you're probably not missing anything significant. But I think if you get two months into that, you're not getting anywhere. And uh, the bleeding is persisting. I think somebody should take a look. And um, uh, and so that that's a, that's a, that's, a, that's an example. I mean, I'm never I'm never uh, hurt by just having a straight up referral when it starts. Um, I, I think that's fine. A lot of patients will be uh, more. I think more educated now. I think they they want to go to the specialist. I'm I'm totally fine seeing a patient that hasn't had a whole lot of treatment at that point. Um, I, I would just hesitate to watch bleeding for too long. That That's sort of the one thing. Um, occasionally, I'll see someone who has an abscess. That's been that I don't really know totally what happened beforehand, but I think the minute you all see an abscess, you should just go ahead and send them to us. Um, I've got some patients who come in, they've been on antibiotics for a number of days and and it just doesn't work. It, it just kind of delays treatment and whatnot. So, so I don't think antibiotics is wrong, but I think it should accompany a, a referral to somebody who can drain the abscess. So those are two big ones.
0: Great, thanks, that's so helpful. Um, I'll squeeze in one last question that just came up, recognizing we're right at the top of the hour. Um, thank you so much for your talk today. Lots of positive comments, and perhaps you can end us with any thoughts about how does the prostate affect the rectum, if at all, question.
1: Uh, I would say very little to not at all. Um, uh, a lot of patients will say, hey, how was my prostate? Because they're so used to getting a rectal exam to examine their prostate. And and I feel the prostate. It's not really what I'm looking for, but if somebody's got a mass in their prostate, I'll see it uh, or, or I'll feel it. Um, um, Uh, But that's not really why I'm there. I've had some. isolated cases where somebody had a prostate. tumor that went into the rectum or something like that, but. even though they're in close proximity, I would say there's not. really a lot of uh, back and forth effect. I think. I think uh, some complicated situations that I deal with with. rectal cancer and rectal cancer invasion into the prostate. something like that, that. That's a different entity, but I think for just. for the benign anus, I don't think there's really much overlap, even though they're really. Close to each other. Now, the one diagnosis I see a fair bit of is radiation proctitis and radiation proctitis comes from patients who uh, previously gotten um, radiation for prostate cancer and. um, And most of RGI guys, I think we have probably close to 60 in the organ clinic. I think that most of them will just do if if it's if it's anything other than really mild, they'll just send them to us because we can do some treatments in the office. Um, this, this topical stuff with something called formalin. And um, so so that's sort of uh, what I guess one, one area where the prostate does bleed over into what I do. Um, uh, and I see somebody like that maybe once a month, maybe once every other month.
0: Great. Well, thanks again. Um, this is a super helpful talk. Thanks for your willingness to come teach Dr. Ryan and hope everybody has a great day. We'll see you next week. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye.